Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. I want to thank you for giving me the great privilege of spending some time with you this evening. And of course, our joint privilege as, as we have in looking at the Word of God and, and seeing how we can apply the wisdom that it contains for us. Don mentioned last week that by looking at the characters of Christmas, we have the opportunity to examine these biblical figures and determine in our own hearts to either avoid the likes of Herod's characteristics or in fact to endeavor to emulate some of the positive characteristics that we see of others mentioned in the Gospels as we approach Christmas. And as I spent some time exploring the subject of uh, the message this evening, I want to let you know that when I held my life up against the subject, any self-righteous pride that I might have had about my Christian walk um, just went into some sort of insignificance. I studied the character of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. It's a story of hope, it's a story of faithfulness, it's a story of resilience, a story of encouragement, and a story of trust. Before we start, would you mind if we just spend a little bit of time in prayer? Let's just pray together. Father God, I want to thank you for the inspired word of God. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you, Father, that it can be illuminated to us again and again And we come before you humbly and sincerely and ask that by your Holy Spirit that we be shaken and shaped. In the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. I'd like to start by just reading a portion of scripture that will give us some context and a little bit of background. And rather than spending the whole time tonight reading through the the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, I'm going to give you the privilege of doing that at home. But I want to just start by reading a few verses of scripture, just beginning in Luke chapter one and starting in verse five. And it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And let me stop there before we go into too much detail about the story of Elizabeth. Let me give you some background. In that first phrase, the very first phrase that Luke talks about, we have some historical and we have some political context. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And for those that heard Don's most excellent message last week, um, let me remind you that this was Herod the Great. He was appointed by Rome and therefore somewhat of a puppet king. He was mentally unstable, and history records that he had something like eight wives. And I'm not sure if that's evidence of mental instability or the cause of it. I'll let you work that out for, you, for yourself. He murdered several members of his, of his family for his personal gain and for retention of his status. And greatness could never be a designation of his character. He was cruel, he was suspicious, he was vindictive. And Don described him him last Sunday as the monstrous fool of Christmas. And Edishine, the biblical commentator, says of Herod that as long as he lived, no woman's honor was safe and no man's life was secure. It was said that it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than it was to be one of Herod's sons. He was detested by his subjects 
They abhorred his cruelty, and of course this is supported, as you'll read later, in a specific instance in the Gospels, his malicious spite in determining that all boys under the age of two should be put to death in Bethlehem, just simply that he could protect his throne. He defiled the land of the Jews, he built ornate temples that were filled with pagan idols that dotted the landscape of Judea. So these were the years of fear. The years of hatred, the years of decadence, the years of corruption, not only in the political system, the Roman government, but also among the Jew- Jewish people. And when, so, so when you read the, the little bit that there that says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, you could just as easily say, in the darkest, most evil days that man could remember. And in addition to this whole cultural darkness, we're talking about a period known as the 400 years of silence. It begins with Malachi's prediction of Elijah's return in Malachi chapter 4, and it ends with its fulfillment, the coming of John the Baptist. Now, that's not to say that nothing happened during those 400 years. There was clearly the fulfillment of prophecy, but God did not speak through the prophets for 400 years. 400 years, it's a long time. And if we, if we look back today, back 400 years, we know that Galileo proved that planets orbited around the sun. Manhattan was purchased by the Dutch for $24. The Taj Mahal was just built in India. So 400 years was a long time. And 400 years without the voice of God through the prophets must have seemed like an absolute eternity. Zechariah and Elizabeth had good lineage. They came from the line of Aaron. But nevertheless, they were a humble couple. Zechariah was a priest serving in one of the 24 divisions assigned to serve in the temple, and it says, importantly in verse 6, it says that they were both righteous before God, that they were walking in all commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And even their names were seemingly preordained by God. Zechariah means God has remembered. And for 400 years, God hadn't spoken, and here they are living in the midst of a cruel dictatorship, and Zechariah, the priest that serves in the temple, has a name that says, God has remembered. And I wonder if every time he heard his name, was it like a cruel stab of doubt that actually has God remembered, or has God for- forgotten us? Has he forsaken us? Has he, has he forgotten his promises? And then, of course, we have Elizabeth. The Greek form is Elizabeth. The Hebrew name that we find one time in the Old Testament is Elisheba. And Elisheba means his oath, God's promise. My God has sworn. And so in the midst of this, in the midst of this darkness, we have this blameless couple before God whose names, when we join them together, say God remembers his oath. And in the next few verses, we read the wonderful story about Zechariah, his duty as a priest, his encounter with an angel that talks about his prayer being heard, his reaction to Gabriel in the midst of 400 years of God's silence, 400 years of nothing and darkness and evil, and of course, their own personal shadow of being childless. And Gabriel, the archangel from God, appears to Zechariah in the temple. And he says, you will have a son He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he'll be great before the Lord, and he'll go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, and Zechariah's reaction was hardly inspiring and positive, was it? He says, how shall I know this? And I do kind of find this slightly humorous, this 
archangel of God appears to Zechariah in the temple, the same angel that appears to Daniel, and Daniel says, I was gripped with fear and I fell to the ground. The same angel that's going to appear to Mary appears to Zechariah, and Zechariah says, nice of you to turn up, but is there any chance of a sign, you know? How will I know this? But his uncertainty, thankfully, doesn't stop the will of God. And as you're aware, he gets a sign, and the sign is he can't speak. And he tries to share the news with the crowds who've waited for a long time outside the temple. Remember, they haven't heard the prophetic voice of God for 400 years, and ironically, when God speaks, Zechariah can't speak. So he has to make these signs and tell people what's going on, and then he goes home to his faithful wife, his blameless wife, Elizabeth, whose name is my God keeps his promise. And you will know the rest of the story. Gabriel goes on to announce to Mary that she is to give birth to Jesus, the Son of God. And she is also told that her cousin Elizabeth is six months pregnant despite her being barren in her old age. And it says that Mary with haste then goes to Judea to see her cousin Elizabeth. And she receives affirmation from her cousin that by the Holy Spirit, She indeed is to give birth to her Lord. And Mary stays with Elizabeth for three months and then returns to her house. And in verse 57, it says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown her great mercy, they rejoiced with her. And we go on to read that they name him John. The hand of God was on him, and he grew and became strong in spirit, and thus the combination of these two humble women, Mary and Elizabeth, sets into motion something that is put so well by Tom Wright when he says it's the gospel before the gospel. A fierce, bright shout of triumph 30 weeks before Bethlehem, 30 years before Calvary and Easter, and it goes with a swing and a clap and a stamp, and it's all about God, and it's all about revolution, And it's all because of Jesus. It's Elizabeth that I want to focus on today. To be a childless Jew 2,000 years ago was considered a disgrace. Barrenness, as we read in the Bible, caused a woman to experience reproach and to uh, to be in some instances completely shunned by society. You'll remember Sarah and Rachel experienced this. It was so pronounced that each offered their handmaids as surrogates. Rachel, the scripture tells us, was so distraught that she cries out to her husband. She says, give me children or I shall die. And then she gives birth to Joseph and she proclaims, God has taken away my reproach. Just as Elizabeth says in verse 25. One historical rabbinical teacher is recorded as saying there are seven people who will be excommunicated from God. And this list begins with a Jew who has no wife, and then a Jew who has a wife and has no child. So in light of that context, you can imagine the the whispers, you can imagine the glances, the gossip, the ridicule, the insinuation and belief from some that in fact these two were cursed by God. But Luke, the researcher, the historian, makes it clear in verse six, he says, they were both righteous before God and they walked in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and they were blameless. And let me, let me make a really quick side note here. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. They were obeying the Mosaic law, the, the law of Moses. And at the time, it would have meant just simply identifying their sin 
and then through sacrifice obtaining God's cleansing. This couple just did things right. Luke, the doctor, goes on to say that she was barren. She was unable to have children. He also states that she was well advanced in years. And the King James Version says she was well stricken in years. But in the midst of this cultural darkness and the silence from the voice of God and in their personal sadness, we read in verse 23, so it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. And now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying that the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And some would say at this point that Elizabeth was doubly blessed. She was pregnant with a long-awaited miraculous child and she was married to a husband who couldn't speak. I'll leave you to decide whether that's appropriate or not. I want us, though, to consider this evening that we must live with the mystery of God. We must live at times with the yes or the no or the wait response to our prayer. Elizabeth, it says, led a blameless, faithful life, but because of her inability to have children, she had been shunned by her community and she'd been talked about and she'd been mocked. And then her years, maybe decades of prayer were heard. And I do wonder how many times she was tempted to give up. Maybe she already had, but I'd really like to think that she'd remembered the blessing of God towards Rachel and towards Sarah. And just as Elizabeth had been praying for the blessing of a child, remember Moses had also prayed that he could enter the promised land. Deuteronomy, Moses says, please let me, please God, let me cross the Jordan to see the wonderful land on the other side, the beautiful hill country and the Lebanon mountains. And Paul's prayer in 2 Corinthians says that he prayed three times that the thorn in his flesh would be removed. And even Jesus would pray for the unity of the church. He says, so that they may be one as we are one. And we pray for miraculous healing. And we pray that God will change the behavior of the rebellious child. And we pray that he will help us forgive the abusive parent or the abusive partner that finally God would end the financial struggles of the business that we've been putting up with for so many years. But remember, Moses wasn't allowed to enter the promised land, but Moses' people were. And the law revealed to Moses from God was taken with them, and Paul's thorn wasn't removed, but perhaps he recognized God's work. The Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul concludes, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. And Jesus' own prayer for unity has been delayed. But the promise that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord still remains as true today as it did then. And as for our own prayers, I really liked what C.S. Lewis had to say. He said, I must often be glad that certain past prayers of my own weren't granted. He also says in Gethsemane, the holiest of all petitioners prayed three times that a certain cup might pass from him. It did not. And after that, the idea that prayer is recommended to us as a sort of infallible gimmick may be dismissed. I think in many ways we've become so used to living in the midst of this instant gratification 
where our patience is tested, when our email isn't responded to within half an hour, or our food delivery hasn't arrived, or our Wi-Fi hasn't been connected. I read an article recently that describes this instant gratification culture as the disease of now. And I wonder if this disease of now has somehow become entwined with our expectation that God needs to immediately demonstrate responses to our prayer. But many times God is working simply on a larger plan. When we are seeking strength, perhaps God might be simply allowing us to be weak so that his glory might be magnified. And when we are asking for riches, perhaps God is wanting us to become enriched. Or perhaps we're just getting in his way. You see, the seeds of Elizabeth's prayer were sown so many years before. They remained dormant through many winters until finally in spring the shoots of answered prayer were seen. Can I encourage you tonight that if you're living in a place of darkness when all seems quiet, God might simply be growing seeds and demanding from us patience and resilience and endurance and trust. Alicia Britt Cholley, in her wonderfully written book, Anonymous, she sees this, I love this quote, she says, Father God is neither careless nor causeless with how he spends our lives. When he calls a soul simultaneously to greatness and obscurity, the fruit, if we wait for it, can change the world. And Elizabeth was certainly called to obscurity and greatness. And the fruit that she patiently waited for did indeed help change the world. And as we live in the mystery of God, how we should long to have those words attached to our name that Luke attached to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. He said they were both righteous before the Lord. They walked in all the ordinances of the Lord blameless. You know, when I was a child growing up in in Northern Ireland, there was a football player by the name of George Best. He was idolized by many, including yours truly. It, it, It wasn't enough, though, that I watched George Best on television. I had to dress up like George Best. And my mum, bless her heart, uh, knitted me, yes, she knitted me a Manchester United jersey with number 11 on the back. And I used to put my white shorts on and my socks and sit down and watch George Best play on television. That wasn't enough, though, because George Best also advertised a certain brand of sausages. So once again, my dear mum used to have to go out and buy Cookstown sausages for me. And it turns out that this... uh, habit of dressing up to watch sport and television wasn't limited to football. If tennis was on, it was my whites, and if it was a cowboy movie, it would be a cowboy outfit. And just before your minds start to go ahead of yourselves, I've long since grown out of this propensity to dress up uh, when watching sport on television, unless the All Blacks are playing, and then I might put a black jersey on. But look, it reminds me of how we can become influenced so much by our environment. While you might not dress up to watch something on television, we can easily take on the complexion of social influences, adorning ourselves in the clothes of popular belief, and we can easily sway in the breeze of opinion and of compromise, and you hear it all the time, don't you? 
If the world is changing, you better keep up. Change is the only constant. If you don't get on board, you're going to get left behind. And that was back then, and it's different now. And if you can't beat them, and jo- then you've got to join them. And the popular term that I'm hearing at the moment is that Christians are deconstructing their faith. And that pains me so much, for that means that they're needing to step over or around the cross of Jesus Christ that costs so much. We can so easily just give and join the populist throng, the mood of the nation, and we can at times shake our head with some sort of feeble ultimatum that says, God, you haven't answered my prayer in my time frame, so I'm done. I've had enough. I give up. But James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And he goes on to say, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. There are times that we need to remain steadfast while living in the mystery of God, while living in an imperfect world. We're living in confusion and uncertainty, and that's why we need each other. That's why we need this community of believers that will hold their hands up when they get tired or that will turn our heads towards the sun when we're looking into some dark abyss. I had the opportunity to pick my character for this message, and when I started researching, I discovered actually there's not a whole lot that's said about Elizabeth. But I do think that It's the unwritten text that speaks the loudest about Elizabeth, the decades of faithfulness, the hours of prayer, the hours of reading the word, perhaps even lamenting the unanswered prayer. I really admire this faithful follower of Yahweh. And I wonder how many times during those many years of anonymity and hiddenness did she remind herself that despite everything, Despite this darkness and corruption, everything that was going on in the world, I wonder how many times she reminded herself that my God is still on the throne. And I've often been drawn to this story in Isaiah that that, that, that speaks of a king named Uzziah. Uzziah had been this young king, a very religious king. He brought back temple worship. He was a patron of the priesthood, and Isaiah, who was a priest, would have just loved this new king and really appreciated him. He changed the throne. He brought immediate success, both economically and in the strength of his army. But then as King Uzziah becomes more successful and becomes more prominent, He attempts to put himself into a priestly role and go into the temple and perform priestly duties, but this wasn't permitted, and the legitimate priesthood resisted him, and it says that King Uzziah, the king, became so angry that he was stricken with leprosy. It was considered a disgrace to have leprosy, and ultimately he died of the disease, and Isaiah starts chapter 6 with these wonderful words in verse 1. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And I've often pictured Isaiah looking at this chaos around him, looking through this kind of 
fog at the grief and the shame and the disappointment in this king that he respected and the fear of a ruined economy and a weakened army. And he says, I can see all of this, but I see also the Lord. And he's sitting upon his throne and he's high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And I think Elizabeth said the same thing. I think in the midst of prophetic silence under the rule of a king named King of the Jews who was deemed Jewish by the Romans and Roman by the Jews, this cruel and vindictive ruler, this whole resulting darkness that occurred, this ordinary person blessed with this extraordinary gift that's a spark that plays a part in changing history and igniting the commencement in many ways of the Christmas story, and I think there and then she might also have said, in these days of Herod, I see also the Lord, and he is high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple. And then she sees her wrinkled hands, and she sees her wrinkled arms as age has taken over, but she looks down and sees that she is to have a child who will bring joy and gladness and will make people ready for the Lord who God was still on the throne. And perhaps as she's reflecting on this, she hears someone knocking at the door and we pick up the story in verse 39 and it says, now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. I've talked a lot about what Elizabeth might have seen during that time. But I want you to remember the, the context and in particular that portion of scripture, because there was a a stack of things that she hadn't seen. Remember, she hadn't seen Jesus walking on the water. And she hadn't sipped the water that had been turned into wine, and she hadn't seen the blind man healed, nor the leper restored, and she hadn't tasted the fish and the bread when he fed the 5,000, and she didn't understand the extent of the impact of his life And she hadn't seen her soon-to-be-born son baptize him. And she hadn't seen his terrible death on the cross. And she hadn't placed her finger in his nail-pierced hands. And she didn't understand anything about his glorious resurrection. And she had no idea about his return. Yet without all of this knowledge, in the midst of everything that is going on, she says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, but why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She already declares this unborn baby, my Lord. And we contrast that with Thomas, the last chapter of John, who had seen and heard so many things about Christ, the Savior of the world. And it says in John 20, 24 to 29, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger 
where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus comes in and stands among them and says, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Elizabeth. And all of a sudden, that mocking tone in my voice when I spoke about Zechariah saying to Gabriel the angel, how will I know this? Comes back to haunt me, for there's been so many times that I too have said, God, how will I know this? Give me, give me a sign. Just give me a hint. And perhaps you have too. Perhaps you have said, if only I could put my finger in your nail-pierced hand or I could put my hand in your side, then I'll know. Yet we've read the account. Yet we've seen his provision. Yet we've experienced his intervention so many times. And we know his undoubted love. Musicians, I'm going to ask that you come and join me. You see, I, I think it's time for us to stand again with a renewed declaration of faith. Faith like Elizabeth's. Whether we are in the midst of barrenness or of reproach or of obscurity or of prominence, whether we are in the midst of a world in moral decline or for that matter in the middle of joy and laughter and in blessing and in harvest and abundance, and I think we need to stand and we need to say, let us live at peace in the mystery of God. And I think we need to stand and say, let us be steadfast in the trial. And I think that we should ask that the description of our lives be that they were righteous before God, walking in all the ways of God blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And I think we should stand and say, we see our Lord. And he sits upon the throne. And he's high and lifted up. And his train fills the temple. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.